morning, afternoon and evening everyone, depending on where you're listening from. I'm William Barzi from the British Blacklist and today on the TBB, TBB, oh my days, forgetting the name of the podcast, guys, it's a tongue twister, it's a tongue twister, the TBB podcast, we need to change the name or something. So yeah, um, we're joined by an actor, better yet, a thespian, a writer, wow. a creative, wait for it, a man of God, can I get a, in the name of Jesus from you? In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen, amen. The generational talent himself, Tom Mucci. So as you can see, I tried my best for the introduction, but um, who better to introduce God, himself than you? God bless you, man. Thank you so much for having me. I am not a thespian. Oh, you're not going to claim it? Do you know why I'm not going to claim it here? It's because I haven't done Shakespeare yet at all. And... I don't know if I want to. Ooh. I want to. I, I know it's very. When you speak, when I speak to like drama teachers, they're like, <gasps> "What do you mean you don't like Shakespeare?" Like, <laughs> for me, it's like I just want to do more real life, modern stuff today. There's so much story to talk about today. I'm tired of Midsummer's Night something. That's just me in it. I'm tired. I just want to see current stuff. There's so much stories to tell that we're living in. I guess he something Shakespeare can be like the skeleton of things. Like his stories are like the story of love, story of pain, story of death. He is the skeleton, but I'm not I'm not doing thou thus half. I'm done with that. I was trying to force thespian on you. I didn't even know that there was like a technical aspect to being called a thespian. I didn't know that you actually yeah. had to do Shakespeare. So I'm I'm enlightened from your tangent and I appreciate it, bro. The word that I harbored on before we get into, like you said, all the different aspects of how you can convey emotion for your art the word that i harbored on was the word tired bro first and foremost how are you doing like, i know you were just bumping some sand cook earlier when i was doing his research um <laughs> yes yeah, so, so how are you doing man yeah his, his music is very therapeutic you know in the morning i don't know much about biology no he's very good music um i'm okay i'm okay managing like doing music now and just the ins and outs of that and press and then the TV shows coming up. And then I have writing to do on a project that I got commissioned on. So it's like managing all of those three things and and then life and family and friends. It's like, oh, this is life. This is this is it. So it does get a bit tiring, but every now and then, you know, God refills me whenever I'm I get empty. So I'm good. I'm all right. I'm I'm doing my thing. You're doing times 10 from the outside looking in it's very difficult not to take notice of you even if we choose not to engage in your art on that particular day is and so many different platforms and mediums and drillagram going on we've got happy birthday messages going on we've got mm. sketch shows going on it's it's like it feels like it's a non-stop conveyor belt with your stuff and that's why i had to ask how you're doing because i could just only assume that it's it's tiring but when you're doing something that you're passionate about maybe not so much. So what yeah. is it like putting your energy into something that you actually care about? Could you have done it with anything else? Could you have committed this amount of time and labor into something that you didn't truly love? You know what, I learned this lesson. Cause I used to work in Costa in Greenwich, Greenwich Odeon. And this was the times when I was making uh, sketches online and I had stopped abruptly. So I was still pretty popular online. So people used to come and like Snapchat me at the, at the till. Like, oh, why do you work here? It was, it was humbling because I had to, I mean, I have to serve them. I have to do my job. And I was telling God, like, 
I'm like, this is nuts, God. Like, I, you know, I want to be an actor and stuff, but I, I, I hate this job of making coffees every day, but I need it. And the kind of word I got was like, if you can do something so diligently and good, something that you don't love and do it so well, how much more for the thing that you love? So like God is watching and he will honor the fact that you do this thing with with the same like energy you would give something you love. So he will gladly give you something. You love. So once I learned that, I think I feel like three months later, that's when the Pamela thing came. And then I was like, okay, okay. I'm ready to leave customer. <laughs> I'm ready to do it. So I learned that. I learned that lesson. It's like whatever it is, if it's Tom Mucci doing it, I want to give it the, my best possible take at it. Yeah, that's how. Yeah, I'll treat everything the same. It's just you will go the extra mile when it's something you love because you love it. It's like a, if a stranger asks me a favor, I'll do it out of the kindness of my heart. The same with someone I love asks me for a favor, but you will go the extra mile for the person you love. But ultimately, I want both of them to still receive. Does that even make yeah, sense? No, perfect sense. Like you said, in terms of being humbled and just putting any towards something that you're not necessarily passionate about, but still trying to do a good job. Like me, myself, I worked in retail for about eight years. Um, mm-hmm. No matter who came into the store, they'd be like, oh, did you just start here? Because you're, you're, you're really, you know, like you've got a lot of energy, a lot of spark. They're going to draw that right yeah. out of you. I'm like, no, no, like eight years deep. Because when you do something, you have to do it to your best ability. Like, I believe that. And you've just taken that onto so many different places. And that's why now, while you're here today, like, congratulations on your new BBC Free series, Proof. I know this isn't the first time on the channel, but mm. something about this, for me, is really different and really special because, like, with your comedy sketch with Famalan, you're on it and it felt like a revival of something in the culture that we'd had before, but we hadn't had yeah. in a long time. With Proof, it feels like the birth of a story that many people didn't even know existed. Like, it's mm. a completely different end of the spectrum. Could you just tell us a little bit about your role? I know you're playing Anthony, the teacher, and um, also your creative input in, in the project and why you think it's so important. As a creative, being caught up in that sketch world, sketches were my thing. Like It's something good. Comedy is my thing. There's, there's a part of me that always kind of wanted to head towards drama one day because I feel like there's so much like pain that I have to give out and so much stories I want to tell. And when Prue came and it was a comedy drama, uh, I just said to myself, God, you answered my prayers. Like, I went into that audition room, like, I, this is mine. This is my chance to show that, like, I can do drama. And in the story as well, like, and people refer to this. I have friends that work there, and they come and tell me stories of how wild it can get in there and how you go strike the balance between loading these kids because they're so rude and giving them the love that they need because the whole world has counted them out. Like they've been kicked out of mainstream education. So there's two paths for them now. It's going back into school or out in the world. And it's like a, a forest, basically. There's prison, there's crime, there's buried them have been kicked out of their houses. There's so much things. And you, you learn to love the kids. It's a tough love place. You've got to be not hard-headed. What's that word? What's the word I'm looking for? But I'm resilient. Yeah, you've got to be resilient in there. And I feel like the character, Anthony, generally the actual actors... I rate them so much. Like, Kosa is a bad man actor. Like, I watched her in Rocks yeah. before I met her, and I was like, oh, yeah, she's now like my, my little sister. Michael, MB Bantz, he's doing sketches. 
I came from that world and I've seen him do all the things that we were trying to do in a smaller amount of time. And I was like, yeah, this is what it's about. It's like, I have people that open the door for me. And everyone kind of played their part to the point where like Michael Daffer has smashed it out of the park. And it's like, rah, the scene evolved basically. And when I speak to Michael, just seeing where his head's at, then Jay and Pia, they're newcomers. To see their energy and their freshness, like, so essentially I am really in our own kind of crew because they all speak to me like, okay, what is it like when you do this? What is it like, have you met this person? Oh, what does what an act to do? And at the same time, they are still young kids. So it's like, they would do the casual, they would play pranks on you. And then you, you gotta be like, what are you, like, do you know what I'm trying to say? So it is that. So off the camera, it was like that. So when it's on the camera, it was natural just bouncing around with them. And yeah, man, I think, I, I think Anthony is, is that teacher that is cool with the kids. But then he has to set them straight and he's emotionally there with them as well. And comedy wise, he, he speaks their language and he also speaks the language of the parents. He's that medium between the two. So many other people are going to be happy to hear from you for an extended period of time because a lot of the time when we see you, you're in character. Other times we see you in small doses, like a shot, like with the sketches. Mm -hmm. So to be able to hear you speak for like a, a long period of time and get inside your head, like it's... It's not something that we get often. So for me, the role that you're playing like as Anthony and Prue, I've already thought like it really mirrors like your own ethos. I know like one of your four things that you always like to check off on your um, checklist, it could have expanded since last time is how does it affect your mentoring? And um, like it's part of your own personal belief system. And like in mm. regards to the mentoring and guiding of youth, you're 28, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 28, yeah. Happy belated as well. Thank so, you. Um, thank you. <laughs> happy belated. So, like, you and the eight, you know, Jesus Christ. Bro, I was just about to cut you off. You, bro, you're not actually that old. Like, you're saying it, but you're not oh, actually. Old. I used to yeah. look at 28 year olds like, oh, you are old. When I bro, was we used really to do that young. in year 11. In year 11, in year 11. Look, <laughs> you used to look at sixth formers and say that they were growing. Like, I could have, no, 28, bro. I'm, I'm just 30. I might as well be 30. That's just what it is. The reason I can't round you up to 30 is because within these two years between 28 and 30, I already know your life is going to look completely different in the most positive way. Bro, I can't allow you to take off two years and round it up. Look what's already happened to your career in the space of two years from 26 to 28. Imagine 28 to 30. I claimed that, bro. I claimed that. So like I said, in actual fact, you're only 28. When did you start to make the transition from a person who was seeking mentorship and guidance to feeling like you're an elder statesman and an OG who needs to mental people but i'm assuming there was a switch where you thought i'm not i'm not a little boy anymore so one i, I wasn't really seeking mentorship i became a christian and uh, my kind of prayer to god was i will give my whole life to you if you bring me the people i need to get where i feel like my heart is telling me to go into acting and he bought the right people so i know those people were older than me more experienced than me in life that he didn't bring actors, older actors to me. He brought like my mentor, Lord Hastings. He's in, he's in politics. He's a Lord. Um, I have a mentor, Paul. He works in like financial equity and managing hedge funds. And Bola, she's a writer and she taught me to write. And they, when they came in, they all taught me different things. And what happens is when I'll be around young people and they ask my opinions on things and I say it, they're like, rah, I never heard it said like that. And then eventually we talk more 
and then it's just a thing where you check up on them. It, it's not like a title. Like I am now the OG, so I will tell you what that is. I <laughs> would never come out of my mouth ever. I don't even think like that. I feel like I have so much to do. There's people who are my OGs. They don't consider themselves my OGs, but in my head, I was like, you're my boss. Like, do you know what I mean? And I don't want to ever be like that for anyone I'm imparting my knowledge on because the people that are imparting their knowledge on me are not like that to me. They don't, they don't give me an age thing or a status thing. They treat me just like anyone else. One of them is a multi, multi-millionaire, but he treats me like anyone would. He's the one that even sponsored me to go to drama school. And so I've taken that and I feel like spiritually, there's five different like sectors of like what you would call a church, not the building, the people. There's like prophetic, there's evangelical, there's pastoral. I feel like I'm evangelical. So like with what God has placed in my heart, like the way he's made me, I've seen like people are drawn to me sometimes it was a bit scary at first because it can be used for the wrong thing and now that I'm kind of more placed in the in the place of understanding what it is the same type of young kids come to me but it's the type of kids that have that go through what I've gone through down to the trauma down to the um the jobs they want to do it's like lots of young actors keep coming to want to talk to me and when you get to know them you're like raw I've gone through that so I say to God, I was like, okay, so I've got through that. You got me through that. You kind of want me to impart that onto them. And that's that's kind of how I've kind of seen it. The real OG is God, bro. I'm just like a vessel, I guess. I'm just taking aback and just soaking up also because as much as you might not like, see yourself in that position, like sometimes perception is reality. And a lot of people do see you as an OG or someone of stature. And the humility that you still have Considering that you previously went by the name of Tommy Expensive, which just sounds <laughs> flat, sounds that sounds was flashy. not humble at all. Bro. <laughs> not humble was a, at all. Oh, we loved it. Uh, that name derived from a terrible place, anyway. So <laughs> it's like, it's and like that's God. why I haven't referred to you by that today. <laughs> but yeah, like for someone that would have uh, carried himself with that name and that level of flamboyance, like I said, we loved it to hear like the humility. It's also amazing just as I guess assume like the growth um, that you've undergone and just the different facets of your character, how it's not just you're not just one element. You you're someone who mentors, you're someone who receives mentorship, and you don't even see it that way. You just see it as having conversations about your life. And if someone can pick something useful from that, then that's amazing. With your previous work that I touched on from the Tommy Expensive era, the, like I have to bring up just because honestly, like, I can't have you here and not take the opportunity to thank you because when I heard you're going to come through and kick it I was the first one to put my name in the house I said I need to talk to Tom I need to talk to Tom so when I went to uni you were told me expensive then um mm-hmm. like Vine videos were a big part of how like we connected with like-minded people like when you're in a new place and you feel alienated you're looking for something familiar familiar when it came to like we could talk about football but someone enjoying football doesn't necessarily mean that they're from the same walk of life as you yeah. But when we could put on one of your videos, that was how we connected. If somebody understood nice. the language from your video, then I was like, yeah, that person gets it. I remember showing um, one of them to someone, you probably probably cringy when you hear people doing your skits, but this was the one where you blasted the ball into the moon when you asked if you could get touched. <laughs> <laughs> that oh, used to happen yeah. so many times. We had a school and it used to go over the fence. So I remember I showed that to my flatmate, Katie, and she's like, 
why did he kick the ball over for no reason? I'm like, because he can. But that's not very nice. I'm like, yeah, bro, just what happens. <laughs> so when people understood your sketches, that meant that we could connect. So, um, so you were using what, my sketches like, as, a, as a barometer to see if, oh, okay, you're cool. Um, you're cool. All right. Can you know what this is? Okay, cool. You're with me. One thousand percent. And I wasn't the only one. <laughs> one thousand percent. So I don't even know if you know. Um, I know like you you went to uni as well. If you know how people are connecting through your videos, but it wasn't just for a laugh. Like for a lot of us, it really was a bridge between like how we could learn to build relationships with people that were similar to us. So it was that time of your life, like when yes, you just blew up and like you said, you're working in a cinema after, but everyone knew you. Like, how did it feel, that sudden rush of attention? Oh, firstly, that whole thing you're saying is, I've never heard that before. That That is uh, actually kind of scary. That, that's I could have been the only one. Because, <laughs> bro, even if it's one person, bro, for me, it's like, these owners used to boot over the ball all the time. So I was just like, nah, everyone knows this. Isn't it? I had to make this into a sketch. Like, this is a thing. And now you're telling me this is how it's imparted into your life. I was like, oh my days, that's, that's nuts. I got chills when you were talking about it. And at the time, bro, Tommy Expensive was like a, I think I didn't know how impactful it was until I, it ended. And I think BuzzFeed did like a top 10 Tom Mucci videos. And I saw how much people around the world. And I was like, yeah, God, I didn't know this was the thing still. And at the time when it was happening, like, Real life was still going on. I was still picking up my little brother from school. But like, what starts to happen was, it was opposite like a, like a school, a school called Harris um, Peckham Academy. And the kids will clock me. So now they know that I keep coming every day to pick him up. So every day I come, there'll be another five kids and another five kids. And one day there was like 40 kids waiting outside because they know I'm going to pick up my brother. And they were screaming and pointing their phone. My brother was so scared. And I was like, I'm still in Peckham. They're like treating me like I'm some celeb. It felt so imposter syndrome-ish. It was like, <laughs> should I enjoy this? If I enjoy this, am I going give to off, give off the energy that like, I think I've made it? Because I haven't. It was a weird place. Like you'd be on the bus. Everyone's like, why are you on the bus? And it was like the attributes, the fame, I had a popularity to money. And it wasn't really the thing. I was, I was, I loved what I was doing, but it wasn't pain. Like it was at the time that that online thing wasn't something that was monetized like how it is now. Um, I would have essentially been an influencer. I learned very quickly with my mentors. Anyway, I learned vital lessons. Like I learned not to be a clout chaser really early because when you're young, you meet someone big, you're like, oh my god, blah blah. blah. My mentor took me to, Bola took me to London Film Festival. It was the launch of a film called um, A United Kingdom. So as David Oyola, that's the lead. And it was, you're there with all these big celebs, like Amar Asante was the director. I was like, oh, I was in a tux, my first ever tux. I was gassed. Oh my days. I went up straight to David Oyola. I was like, ah, really respect you, blah, 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 blah. I want you to mentor me. He looked at me, he's like, Tom? Tom, right? I was like, yeah, he's like, I have four kids and I live in LA. It would be impossible for me to mentor you. But I love how brazen you was. God bless you. And I, I wish you the best in your career. And that hit me so hard, yeah. He was so polite, but it's just a, 
the gasness of it. Like I, I, I lost that whole thing of being gassed by it all. I lost all of it. I have to say grounded. I have my, my friends keep me grounded. Like, like my friends do this thing where they're like, oh, Tom, what are you doing today? I say, oh, I got this meeting with Netflix. And then after he's like, damn. Do you remember when you were you were upset that you were not verified? And all this stuff, and then I called you now. You're saying you have a thing with Netflix and blah blah blah. But to me now, that's just part and parcel. And they always kept me in check, like to never let me get like too involved in the pizzazz of it all. Like my favorite thing is to chill with my friends. Like, that's my that's my best best thing ever. Like and eat and and drink. That's us. That is the pinnacle of my the fame stuff. It's all jazz, bro. I know you would hear it. It's all cliche, but like it's really. I really wish I could give people a slice of it, like because sometimes you just want to. I love mask the COVID mask because you go places and we all look the same. <laughs> you can just see the eyes. And then <laughs> one time I go out, I was on um, Jubilee Live. I'm wearing a mask, and someone goes, "Oh shit, so expensive." Sorry for sorry. In my head, I was like, "How the hell did you?" This guy's been looking into my eyes. How does man recognize my eyes? Like, when I had a whole hood on with a mask, you recognize my eyes. I said, yeah. Fame is a different thing, yeah. But I'm okay, I'm okay with it, man. It's, it's, it's something that's come with my purpose, but too much of anything is, is not good. So I balance it out. No, no, like the London Film Festival bit um, really got me because um, the only reason I got to do something like this, like this particular job is because I went on a mentorship programme and in October I got to go to the London Film Festival. I've never been anywhere like that. And I remember we got to see the premiere of Mangrove and like, Tisha Wright stood up. Yeah, and then Malachi Kirby stood up. I was just like, whoa, like these people are just yeah. people after the shot goes away. Like you said, everyone is just a normal person. And I think it's good for... Um, people like where we're from um, to get exposed to these type of scenarios yeah. to kind of normalize it where we can feel like we can be in these buildings too. And there's nothing um, strange about being in these type of buildings. It should become normal because we should all be allowed in there. Even fame itself is a very different concept. In terms of entering spaces and buildings, what is it like when you're, I don't know if you're the only black face in there or the only person from Peckham in there or only black, what is it like entering these buildings now and trying to, put forward stories that tell your truth to people that might not necessarily know your truth. Is it easier now? Well, yeah, this black is king now. So when you go into rooms and you want to tell your story, or you have a script, they're going to listen to you now. This is the time. When Black Lives Matter and then there was this like Black Squares Day where we had to educate um, white people about how they are and oppression, how things come across. I've got a scripts commission with the BBC and I think they purely commissioned it because they liked the comedy that I did. But essentially right now, they want more of that stuff on their channel because they're realizing the TV has to reflect real life. So going into rooms, I guess before, and you go into these type of um, events, you will be the only black people there. And you, you, you stick out like a sore thumb. But for me, that's always been a plus, man. I am myself everywhere I go. How I will be in Nam with my friends is how I'm going to be if I'm in front of the peak. Direct, I cannot not be myself. It does, it's insane. I used to have a, a I have, a, I still have a friend, but he used to change his accent when he goes on TV. Oh my God, we killed him. 
he puts on this RP voice, yeah. We we actually sat him down and said, bro, you need to stop. <laughs> You're from Nam. When you go on these things, speak. I'm not telling you to go and say, yo, blood, and I'm telling you to do that, but like speak how you speak to us. Like this is this ain't you, fam. Like this ain't you. And that's kind of my that's kind of one of my models, man. I can't I can't change myself. When I go into this room, like, if I am just the black guy or the only black person or only person from Peckham, it's more of a strength than a weakness for me. Because essentially, we're in a world where the weird people are cool now. Yeah. Have you realised that? When we were yeah. younger, the nerds, what we would call nerds, well, they had their own corner, they, they were in the library. Those are the cool guys now because they stand out from everyone else who's doing the same thing. So why not be in the room and you're the only black person? Yeah, okay, cool, no problem. That's fine. You're going to come and speak to me, though. So you, you're going to want to know why am I dressed like that? And I will educate you as to why you don't ask those questions. <laughs> All of that, but <laughs> I've been okay with that, man. Nothing nothing too untoward has happened. You're gaining power from standing out, essentially, because when you talk about the nerds and stuff, I guess I was somewhere in the middle of school, but all the people who are actually full-blown what we consider weird, those are the people that are now flipping Bitcoin and making stupid yeah. money, the people that are that are into anime and um, yep. also like become like cartoonists and animators. Anime is cool now. Anime is cool. Is if you don't cool know about anime, you can't Bro, sit at the table with us. It's like people that would watch the anime, they were seen as nerds at one point. Now anime is on the timeline. Attack on Titan is like the best show in the world that everyone should watch. I'm just like, rah. The flip, the flip. It's the same mm-hmm. thing in the industry. Like, as I'm saying, black people, are, well, we've always been cool. That's the point here. We've always been cool. It's always we direct culture. And it's now it's like, it's reparations, really. It's like, okay, cool. If we're cool, then give us what we deserve. Give us space on the table. The thing is, you know, black is cool. And it's now that it's being accepted by others that we didn't need anyone else to accept it, but from a financial point of view, it's become very lucrative for people to understand the power that we have in our culture. But I've heard what might not be as cool, and what I've heard you say many times is that comedy is becoming extinct because people are becoming yeah. too sensitive. I know that in previous situations you've experienced backlash and red mm-hmm. tear, but what makes you stick with comedy, even though you see the future trending towards a place where people can't speak as freely as they can now why do you still stick around we're grateful you stick around but why there's a thing where i say a great stand-up yeah if he's performing on the stage 50 percent of the room would be laughing and in tears the other 50 percent will hate him and then he's done his job because comedy is just like music it gets into your soul without permission when something's funny you're not stopping it. You can try as much as you want. You're going to find it funny. Whether you hide it to the world, you're going to find it funny. And for me, that's just where God's placed me. You know, I have a very, everything I look at, I look at it comically first. It's like my mind thinks comically first. So that's what it was like even when I was doing the sketches. I would see the world differently. I'm always like, oh, what if this happens? Or what if that happens? I have lots of ideas, comedy based. So Obviously, back in the days when people used to make sexual jokes, that's inappropriate now. And the whole thing is like only people of that particular understanding or live in that situation can make a joke on it. Even it even extends to now, only certain actors of that background can play certain characters. So then 
if I'm from Mozambique, I can only play characters that are from Mozambique, then that defeats the purpose of what an actor is, which is a blank canvas that anything can be painted on. And comedy, for me, it's like medicine. The way music is medicine, comedy is medicine. We all, we all need to laugh. Like, people don't give comedy its props, but comedy also wins awards. It also wins Oscars. Like, comedy movies are huge. We all have comedy, like, classics in our head that we're like, oh, coming to America, they, they're important. It's because that, it's called drama is the main thing that everyone wants to get into. And I had that problem, bro. Like, I felt like, obviously, when I stopped the sketches to get into comedy, I got into this place of like, I'm gonna do drama, I'm gonna do drama. And I, I slept on comedy for so long. Like I told my agents I want to get into like drama and I'll be going up for these drama, dramatic roles. I'll do very well. Some of them I'll even go second round, but I won't get it. And I realized I kept dipping out of my lane. And that's because I started to feel like comedy wasn't respected. And when you say you're an actor, as opposed to when you say you're a comedian, they demand two different type of respect. People in the industry, respect comedy because most dramatic actors can't do comedy because it's the instant gratification how you know you're good is if people are laughing or not that's it with drama you say this is red you leave it there people can interpret it as blue or blah 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 you gave what you gave you don't need to to get a reaction from it and I felt like with comedy I wasn't it wasn't getting what I want to get so I want to get that dramatic thing and then maybe later I'll go back into comedy I got an advice from my friend Samson, who's like BAFTA nominated and comedy is his lane and his kid, he has three, four TV shows that he's written that are all filming and out. Like, and he's like, bro, I got a BAFTA nom. I can go and do drama now. What are they going to say to me? If I want to do drama, they see that my stuff works. I can switch over. Bang your lane because it's, it's where you're strong and then branch out. And I said, cool. And then that's changed my whole aspect, my whole thinking. Like, it, my, I've realized my ideas are all flowing back in now. Like, I had a period where it was just like, I was so tunnel vision. And then when you're in that space and you want to explore it, you realize, I don't even know if the world can take this anymore. I don't know what's safe to say. I do know what's safe to not say. But, damn, if I put this out. And sometimes it's not just what you do. You can be a part of something. And then the higher ups think something is funny. And you're a part of that vessel, but you're not, you don't make the decisions. But because you're the front face of it, everybody outside are going to blame you for it. There's managing that. So I don't know if comedy, I think comedy is going to become like bootleg alcohol. No, alcohol was banned. And people have to sell it. Probably, yeah, I feel like I feel that's what's going to happen. It's going to be like underground comedy clubs. Like, because I feel like in them. I'll go watch. I, I can't do stand up. I, I can. But I'm terrified of it. Stand-up is just 10 different stories. That's it. You're telling 10 different stories. I do that with my friends all the time. I just have to do it while entertaining people. But with my friends, I don't feel like I'm entertaining them. I'm just telling them how crap the situation was. But the nerve-wracking, it's too nerve-wracking. It's too nerve-wracking. I'll go to these prohibition comedy clubs, 100%. One of them things where you have to say the past. The guy opens the thing. What's the password? That type of thing. That's where we're headed, man. It's... We're all supposed to make fun of each other, man. I don't know. Like, not in... We're all supposed not in a malicious laugh sense. At, yeah, we're all supposed to mm. laugh at ourselves a bit. Like, the world has become so... Well, the world is serious, but it's, it's so serious. Like, only Black people can laugh at Black people because the connotations of that. So, like, if a white person... Like, let's say we, we made a All Lives Matter joke, yeah? All Lives Matter. We said, okay, how can we make white people understand All Lives Matter? 
or no, because there's some black people that all lives matter. How can we make all lives matter people understand that that is wrong? So we said, okay, take them back to a slave ship and put the all lives matter guy in there because that is, that is the root of it. So we've taken something, we've exaggerated it and we loaded it. And then people were getting on to, to us saying, mm, I don't know how I feel about white people laughing at this joke. Then I clocked, okay, oh God, I don't, nothing is, it's, it's black people doing it. We put that sketch together. We improvised it. It's like nothing, nothing, there's nothing we can do. Like the joke made sense when we were doing Black Lives Matter when we were all out on the street. The sketch resurfaced and we're like, oh, this sketch makes so much sense now. At the time, they were trying to finish us. It was like some wild, I thought it was like fake outrage anyway, at that particular one. Yeah, I'm scared for comedy, man. It's going to become too safe to the point where you'll be watching films and all you're doing is, <laughs> like, I want the belly laughs. Like, that's why Dave Chappelle will forever be the best comedian in the world. Well, Eddie Murphy's there as well. It's between well, him and Eddie Murphy for me. The, the reason why I have to cut off here is because I was going to mention those two specifically, even when you mentioned the comment to America. I feel like your career... I don't know if you want to say or not, but I'll say for your career definitely mirrors that trajectory in a lot of ways because Eddie Murphy, as you know, starting off raw, delirious, um, yeah. you don't do stand-up, like you said, but even in his films, Come to America, um, it, was, it was comedy. It was comedy at its root. And then he decided that he wanted to take a dramatic turn. And no matter what other people thought about what he should be doing, he said, nah, this is what I want to do and this is what gives me fulfilment. Dave Chappelle similarly after the um, Chappelle show, he took a break and went off into the wilderness and came back mm. again, sort of like you with the Tommy Expensive persona mm. and then to come back as Tom Mucci. I feel like one day your career is going to be studied as a case study of how people transition from, I'm being deadly serious, how people oh, transition from, from that space into the space that they want to be in. I don't allow themselves to be pigeonholed. So when I look at you, I see Eddie Murphy and I see Dave Chappelle. Oh. You are giving me everything right now, bro. To say that, Mike, I claim it because I claim it. You, those, those are the giants for me. Like, I think the biggest black entertainer would everything is Eddie Murphy for me. And Dave Chappelle is, that's where I go for comedy. That's where I draw inspiration from. There's a, one of his specials at the start of his special, he got Morgan Freeman like, narrate at the beginning. He's like, this is Dave. Dave, and Dave is just sitting down like this, like thinking the camera's going around him and he's, he's like, Morgan Freeman was like, he's thinking about sketches and like, that's the process. That's one of his processes. And I was looking at him, I was like, oh my God, I do that. Like when I think of sketches, they just come in a second and I go like that, I'll be like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I literally feel like God downloads it to me. It's like my thing. And I was like, oh, Dave Chappelle does that. That gave me so much like, Oh my God! Yeah, me and yeah, me and Dave do that. That's me and Dave's thing. So when you said <laughs> when you said that, oh, um, um, I see a trajectory like Dave, bro. God bless you, man. I take that as a prophecy, bro. I want that. I want that sixty million that Dave got. I want that one as well. I'll take that one as well. Everything that comes, bro. You through. both, Amen. You both bet on yourself. Like I said, I've seen you bet on yourself and do what others have told you not to do. Like when did you stop the Tommy Spencer thing? 
Brotherhood mourned for about three days. I know you know about the three day rule. So for about three days, we mourned people pouring out this around and all sorts. Ah, he's lost it. Ah, he doesn't want to pour it now anymore. Bro, bro, it was hard for us, man. Like, it's like when Bauer said he wanted to be Shad Moss and we're like, nah, like, what's going on here? But, like, you proved, you proved us all wrong and it wasn't because we didn't want you to do something else. It's because we haven't seen anyone do it before. We're worried. We didn't want you to throw away what we thought that you had. But what you let go of was worth less than what you ended up grabbing onto so you clearly have that same instinct for what you want to do next in your career and you know better than anyone else um because you've got a higher power directing you so that's why i definitely see the comparisons between those careers and your own and then um i guess i'll before i let you go quick five questions i wanted to ask you um why you think it's so special I guess to tell stories about people and characters where you come from because what i tend to see in your work are exaggerations of characters in our like the aunties the uncles the mandem why do you feel like these characters resonate so much with like a bigger audience even though they normally exist in a vacuum in the hood where people don't see them but you've blown them up and put them out there and why do you think so many people are gravitating towards it and what do you think about growing up in that space and the charisma that comes with it naturally when you think about the broadcasters that um put out content like the the big channels or even like a show like Friends. Friends depicted New York and there was no black people there. It was insane. Like it, when we clocked it after the whole series was done, years. And I feel like the, the aunties and the uncles and the caricatures like from the hood and African backgrounds, Caribbean backgrounds, they shaped all of us. They shaped us. They are part of society. And <laughs> bear of them are funny, fam. They're funny. And the funniness isn't, I broke down my sketches into, there's some ones that have accents and then there's some ones that we don't put no accents, we don't put no words, it's just relatable stuff. Like people that take pictures of their food before they eat. Like that was one of my first videos and it, it, that went on YouTube. And then I thought, why did that go so far? Is it because it had no connotation to accents? Right? Why is that? And as we got further, we created this dad character he used to get millions and millions of views. So I was like, no, then it wasn't, I was wrong. It's like, this stuff can go to a bigger audience. It's just because what I've been used to seeing the same thing. And I want to see myself on TV. I want to see my uncles and my dads and my aunties and the Caribbeans and the black. I want to see them. I want to see the Indians. I want to see the Chinese. I want to see everybody. Because that's what the world is. Like everyone has their stereotypical caricature. It shouldn't just be what it was for however long which was just bare white people on TV. That isn't the world. It's like Star Wars. Bro, I think there's a maximum of like four black people in space that no one has been <laughs> to. There's more monsters than there is black people. Do you know what that is? So I feel like a part of my duty towards Black Lives Matter is when it's my show and I'm going to make sure there's black people in front of the camera, black people from the writer's room, and black people um, behind the camera. And then as well, including other races, because it's like, at the same time, it can't just be my view. Do you know what I'm trying to say? I've also got to check myself. Like, it can't always be my view, but I am responsible for telling, I've made myself responsible for telling my story from the eyes of, of a young black kid in the UK with African descent. And a lot of people relate to that. I can't. Right now, I don't want to tell you a story because I, need to, I don't feel like I've seen it enough. When it becomes saturated, just as saturated as um, everything else that's out there, then 
I'll change it. I like seeing them. I like seeing them. I don't know if I'll ever get tired of it, but that's because I haven't seen them enough. Do you know what I mean? Right now, I'm definitely not tired of it. So the more you keep bringing them up to light, and the more I can show my mom and be like, mom, like, and her, she can look at it a bit side eye and be like, I know you're indirecting me, but moving on swiftly. Like, <laughs> that's what we, we like. <laughs> we like seeing ourselves on screen and it's not enough, man. Um, I'll ask you some quick fire questions and then let you get on with your day. I also saw your tweet yesterday that you haven't eaten, bro. Eat, please. <laughs> Make sure you eat. <laughs> Make sure you bro, eat after this. <laughs> I don't know. Someone, lately, I've just been getting on with things and then I just won't eat. It's getting very, yeah, it's getting bad. I had some baguette and hot chocolate today. I don't know why that is even a good thing, but I'd have, that's what I had. I want to ask the book that you have in your collection um, that you turn to. That's whenever you want to read something. I'll tell you what I'm reading right now. It's a book called I Believe in Visions by Kenneth Hagen. So it's about a man who was paralyzed up until the age of 16. And God spoke to him about a particular scripture. The scripture was like, if you pray and you believe, then it will happen. And to kind of treat that as a contract, like it's a contract that God has done with you. So don't believe after it's happened, believe before it's happened. And he said, okay, God. And he's like, if you believe it, stand up and walk. And he stood up and he walked after 16 years of being paralyzed. And it's a story about how Jesus appeared to him over his whole trajectory of his life. And it just breaks down like how kind of Jesus works and God works and how he everything is in the Bible and it's referenced to the Bible. He doesn't say anything that isn't in the Bible. And it's really given me um in this time when we're all kind of inside, like my faith has just been renewed and I'm learning new and new more things. So one of my mentors is he calls me fortnightly and I'm reading the book with him and then we talk about it. So that's my one right now. Uh, I believe Bro, in gonna, by Kenneth Hagen. It's peak, you know. It's it builds faith. I'm not an avid reader, that's why I like this question because I always it's get a, a lot of gems from you guys. It's a it's a small book. It's like it's not one of those Christian books are like proper thin. They're never like um, Lord of the Rings or nothing like that. It's not a novel. <laughs> a song or album that defines the soundtrack um, of your life to date. I know they say quick fire, but this one's never quick to be honest. Uh, Whiskey Ayo. The, the album with Jewel Legba on it. Yeah, Whiskey speaking about where he came from and where he is now. And he has a song called Jai Jai. Yeah. No one really clocks here. Yeah. He made everybody pray for him. And I feel like that is the biggest cheat code ever. This, he's saying like, Kole, Mole. I think that meant like houses on houses or something. And the ad lib is, Amen. Bugatti for my mommy. And he goes, Amen. We're all praying for him. He's saying, Whiskey, look at, look at, Whiskey will go up. Amen. And I was like, Okay, you're a Christian. You've made it. And now you're making millions of people pray for you. And speaking about the transition from being a church drummer to working in a studio, cleaning, and then now you're this big African superstar. And being an African, like that album inspired me. Like, I still listen to it today. Well, his new album is outrageous. It's, it's too good. Um, but that one there, a lot of things I can relate to. He has songs about his mum. He has songs about his, his missus. Like, it's about money. and like I love the album. That's the soundtrack to my life. A film or TV show that you'll um, watch repeatedly whenever it's on. Or is it going to be Con Air? I know about the backstory. <laughs> <laughs> You not bring that up. <laughs> <laughs> It'll have to be Prison Break. 
Okay. If that comes on season one, I'm there. It's too peak. That season one of Prison Break is one of the best opening seasons I've ever seen. It's too peak. Michael Schofield was so wild. Obviously, the, as the season went on, it whittled down. Because I guess how many times you get to break? We're not talking about season three and four. <laughs> the modern times of it, I guess, is probably um, Money Heist because they've got that repetitive thing going on. But Prison Break, yeah, 100%. Um, I agree. Like I said, after season two, I, I don't know what happened yeah. after that. But the first season, incredible, man. It's something you saw on stage that left a lasting impact on you. Um, when I went to watch Barbershop Chronicles in 2017, there was an actor called Hamed, and he was on the stage for like 30 minutes. He was doing his lines, but he was improvising around it. And he was just having fun. I feel like it's the best play I've ever seen in my life. And I watched him like, oh my God, God, I want to do this. I remember I prayed outside the National Theatre. I put my hand like this saying, God, I want to work at the National Theatre. And he turned that into reality because I did end up being in Barbershop Chronicles. But that day, I went with my friends then and were like, bro, oh, that guy was having too much fun on stage. I didn't, I didn't know theatre can be like this. It revolutionised me. Like, and I told Hamid, Bro, I think, I think you're the best theater guy in the world. You're, you're too good. There's a point he fell on the ground and started laughing. I've seen the scripts. That wasn't in it. When I finally saw his mind, <laughs> I was like, this is nothing like what he did. He completely took it somewhere else. And that's another thing with comedy. You can bring your own stuff to it. Drama is like, you can bring your own stuff, but it's kind of rigid a bit. Like, you'll find things, but it's like, essentially, there's an arc you really got to follow. With comedy, it's like, if it's funny, it's funny. That's it. No one can argue with it. Um, but yeah, it was Barbershop Chronicles, definitely. Ah, great choice, man. And this last one is a three-parter. It's what's made you sad, mad, and glad this week? Um, not going well, family, good family-wise. I feel like it's just life, in it? It's like it always balances out when stuff is going good. So it's, it just always has to be another balance somewhere. What's made me mad... I've ordered a lot of stuff. I got I just got into a new place, ordered a lot of stuff, and I ordered some pots here from Amazon, and uh, I ordered this in my old address. And I don't live there no more. So I had to order some new ones because I need pots. And I'm trying to cancel the other ones, but they're not cancelling. So I've just lost money. So I, there's some You're pots somewhere. You're going to speak to the new, the new residents. No, there's no one. It's been stripped. Like, there's, they're redoing it to sell it on in June. And... Yeah, the new pots arrives and I've just got like 50 pounds, 54 pounds, just not probably going to not get refunded. It's annoying because I could have been more diligent and just put the right address, but I just don't know what happened. Um, what's made me glad? PRU going to series. The pilot hasn't even come out. We've got four episodes. So I thought that's a blessing in this time that we're in that like I can still work. I can still, God is still providing for me. Like this show is going to do what it needs to do. Like I'm very glad about that. Thank you so much for your time and for sitting and joining us and speaking to us. I just want to end on a quote that you said yourself. Nam Youth becomes Instagram comedian. Instagram comedian becomes TV actor. TV actor becomes theatre and stage actor. TV and stage actor becomes a rapper. I uh, can't make this up. God, what are you on with me? You're showing off your child. I love you. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to put that out there for everyone because that's exactly what's happening. Um, we love watching it manifest, bro. Thank you for your time. I hope everything is well with you and the family going forward, career-wise. I'm looking forward to seeing you and hopefully speaking to you again one day, man. Thank you. Definitely, bro. What would mean, man? Come on, man. Do you know how many times I see a queer at, at events? There's a <laughs> time we went to 
Chiwetel, Chiwetel Ejiofor's screening. And after that, David Oyola was thing. I don't speak to celebs. Aquia was like, like, no. She was like, no. She grabbed my hand like an auntie and took me to him. No. Like, and I was just like, I don't know. I was like, I kind of did that Dubai thing where I I showed him respect or blah, but he was calm. (laughs) But me, bro, let Jesus be in Woolwich, bro. I will be in Woolwich in (laughs) seconds, bro. I'll plow out, bro. But yeah, man, thank you so much for, <laughs> for interviewing me, man. I, I appreciate it. It's a very good interview.